We are in the condition we are in, in the state of ignorance we are in, in the state of war, in the state of economic depression, in the state of depletion of the resources of our planet because of the greed of psychopaths who thought they could create their own reality. Well, look at the reality they created. You're listening to The Truth Perspective on the Soft Radio Network, the world for people who think. Hello, today is Sunday, August 13th, and welcome to The Truth Perspective, everyone. I'm your host, Elon Martin, and with me in the studio today is Harrison Keeley. Hello, everyone. We are very happy to have back with us today J. Michael Springman, an attorney and former diplomat with the U.S. State Department. Mike is a seasoned veteran of U.S. politics and geopolitics. His views and research are greatly informed by the years he spent in Germany, Saudi Arabia, and India in diplomatic service. Last fall, we had him on the show to discuss his book, Visas for Al-Qaeda, CIA Handouts That Rock the World. And today we'll be discussing his new book, Goodbye Europe, Hello Chaos, Merkel's Migrant Bomb. Welcome back to the show, Mike. Well, thank you for having me back. I am uh, quite pleased that I can speak to you and your listeners and tell them a bit about the new book. It, it's a fantastic book. Um, as we were saying briefly before the show, it goes out into all kinds of directions, cited with a lot of uh, research. Um, if you think you have a grasp on the issue at hand, uh, the, the migrant crisis in Europe, think again. It, it, uh, it sprawls out into all kinds of different directions. Uh, but before we begin discussing your book, I thought for our listeners, it might be interesting to just get a kind of a recap for those who've never read Visas for Al-Qaeda and uh, or who might have listened to our interview with you uh, last fall. So I'm wondering, Mike, if you can just uh, briefly mention those main points and, and things that you discovered uh, that are crucial to the points that you make in your book, Visas for Al-Qaeda, and then we'll move on and discuss your new book a little bit. Sure. In a way, Visas for Al-Qaeda is a precursor to Goodbye Europe, Hello Chaos. It showed what the United States did to create international Muslim terrorism, uh, starting with uh, the war in Afghanistan against the Soviet Union. I had been assigned to Jeddah as visa officer, and my... Uh, found myself in a really strange situation because I'd been told by the American ambassador at the time, Walter Cutler, before I left Washington, that my predecessor had created such problems for the embassy in refusing visas to the servants of rich Saudi women. And I thought this was really strange and he was telling me something, but I couldn't for the life of me figure out what it was. And when I asked the guy uh, who was the uh, Saudi desk officer, the fellow who followed events in Saudi Arabia for the State Department in Washington about this, he just said, oh, well, Cutler, he's just a queer duck. Well, when I got to Jeddah, I found that I was being uh, told to issue visas to people who simply didn't qualify for them. You have to show you have ties to your home country or to the place of application that are strong enough to pull you back from the United States once you go there for a visit or tourism uh, or seeing the Grand Canyon or maybe concluding a business deal or, or something like this. Mm -hmm. And uh, 
you know, you needed things like a job or a business or uh, family ties and, and, and so on. And I would get people that uh, wanted to go to a trade show in the United States but couldn't name the trade show and uh, had no idea in which city it was going to be held. Right. And when I kept asking about this, I said, well, what's going on? Tell me what, what what's going on here. I was just simply threatened with either issue the visas or you're going to be unemployed. Well, it wasn't until I was unemployed and back in Washington that I learned from the journalist Joe Trento that these visas that I was refusing and questioning were visas for recruits for the Mujahideen for the war in Afghanistan against the Soviets. These were people who were being brought to the United States for training. Uh, they were people who were sent to U.S. military facilities, generally on the East Coast, usually in North Carolina. And I couldn't narrow it down really more than that. But in the process of researching the book, I found that there were recruiting offices in every state in the country, including one in Washington, D.C. There were 52 of them. And that's as far as I could get with my research. Nobody could tell me, even the guy who wrote about them originally, this guy uh, was uh, Peterson, I think. So uh, I looked at this book and started researching and based uh, what I had written uh, on efforts to find things out about what was really happening through the Freedom of Information Act. I'd filed two lawsuits in all, some 20 years apart, trying to get the documents that I had used, listing the names of the people who had applied for visas and which I had refused, and then had written down, reversed by by order of uh, J.P. Frere's American Consul General. Well, somehow they disappeared. They were shredded after I left. And, or the copies I had made were shredded after I had left. And uh, the State Department claimed that, oh, we shredded all the documents, which was not the case. They, we issued about forty or 45,000 uh, uh, refusals or denials to applicants over the course of a year and generated a lot of paper, which I had seen in the files had never been uh, actually shredded or, or destroyed. And when I wanted to know, well, okay, the State Department says you shredded these documents, which I know to be there because my predecessors had never shredded any of them. Tell me who did it, when they did it, and what was their position. And state refused to answer. And the uh, um, first uh, request was shut down as a threat to national security, which I still find amazing. Mm -hmm. And the second request was shut down by a judge on the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act Court. So uh, I think we know where that that was going and, and why they really shut it down. I was looking at something the government wanted to keep quiet about. But in the course of doing the book, I divided it into chapters on uh, Afghanistan and on uh, Iraq and on Yugoslavia and Libya and Syria, showing how these same guys that we had recruited for the Mujahideen years ago were being rebranded and recast as Al-Qaeda and then as uh, ISIL or ISIS or IS or Daesh or whatever you want to call them. But it's the same crowd of fanatical Muslims that the Americans and the Saudis and the Pakistanis had recruited, trained, and supported all these years. Mm -hmm. And at one point, I had uh, the opportunity to speak to uh, Colonel Anthony Schaefer, who uh, is now retired from the Army, and also to former Senator Mike Gravel, Democrat from Alaska. And, uh, And when I asked both of them, are these the same guys that we had in Afghanistan, that were fighting now in Iraq and wherever. They said, yeah, it's the same crowd. It may not be the exact same people. They you know, might have aged out over the years, 
but it was either them or the people they uh, recruited and trained themselves. So uh, it's going on. We've got a, a cadre, an Arab-Afghan legion, if you will, of people who are good at shooting things down and blowing things up and who are very good at destabilizing and overthrowing governments. And this happened uh, very notably in Libya. Look at what happened to Muammar Gaddafi. They had the highest quality of life of any country in Africa thanks to oil wealth. And uh, they had free medical care. They had free education. They had loans uh, interest-free to people who wanted to uh, get married and, and, and form a household and build a house and so on. And the Americans didn't like that. Uh, he was a socialist. He was going his own way. He wanted to make Libya the preeminent country in Africa, and that apparently conflicted with American designs on the continent. Right. Uh, we've seen what's happened in, in Syria. It's been turned into uh, another wreck of a country like Iraq. And uh, it still has a functioning government, but the Americans and the European allies and the, the Arab Afghans and the Saudis uh, and the, the Gulf countries, uh, notably Bahrain and Qatar and, and the United Arab Emirates, uh, are doing their best to print passports for terrorists who are uh, – they supply them with weapons, they supply them with education and training and so on. So it's uh, – a long road with the same people running the show. And it's, it's, uh, I don't see an end to it, unfortunately. Mm -hmm. So, so basically, so basically, you discovered this, you uh, discovered this governmental, uh, governmental, I think we're getting a little bit of a, okay. an echo. Okay. Uh, so Mike, you, you're saying that you found this, um, U.S. government, uh, infrastructure for facilitating the movement of jihadis. Uh, across the Middle East, and when you uh, when you confronted uh, the government about this, they basically tried to stifle the investigation and stonewall you. And uh, and it points to U.S. complicity in destroying countries via these proxy uh, jihadis that they've that they've uh, allowed to move around. Mm -hmm. Okay, well. Um, I guess from there we can begin talking about your new book, um, and I think a good place to start would be with uh, the discussion of uh, weapons of mass migration, which was a book or paper uh, written by Kelly M. Greenhill. Um, as you describe in your book, there is actually a an analysis of how. Uh, mass migration can be used politically to destabilize governments that the uh, U.S. government would like to see destabilized. Uh, so there's there's not only this um, uh, this negative byproduct of of starting these um, proxy wars of aggression against governments that are not uh, complying with U.S. policy, but there's also this knock-on effect of uh, facilitating the movement of very large numbers of people, uh, most of which are coming from the Middle East, uh, North Africa, uh, parts of uh, South Asia, into Europe, and destabilizing uh, countries in, in Europe. Um, and that's, in her paper, discussed and, and described as a way to uh, exercise a certain amount of uh, control over these countries in Europe. In any case, um, if you can discuss uh, her, her book a little bit and, uh, mm -hmm. and the thinking uh, that is behind 
this type of um, analysis. I think that that may be a good point of departure for the rest of your book. Sure. Well, Kelly Greenhill wrote this thing uh, and published it roughly mm, seven years ago, around 2010. And she goes into uh, great analysis of some 64 uh, examples of uh, using mass migration as a weapon, everything from the uh, the Haiti and uh, boat people crisis, the rafters, uh, the uh, boat people from Cuba, Korea, for example, uh, trying to destabilize North Korea by encouraging the population to leave. And uh, she goes back and forth with some analysis in detail, and it's remarkably hard to get through. I mean, it's in English, but it's in very academic English. Mm-hmm. And Kelly Greenhill has a lot of academic background. I don't know how many degrees she has. I have to look at the book to tell you. But uh, her biography shows that she has ties to all of the um, establishment schools like Harvard and Yale. Uh, she's in with the... Um, uh, national security apparatus in, in most of these organizations, uh, with DARPA, in fact, even at one point. And she was, uh, when uh, John Kerry was senator, she uh, worked in his office on Capitol Hill. But the basics of what she writes about is you destabilize one country by forcing or encouraging its population to leave. It weakens them, it, they lose the doctors, the lawyers, the Indian chiefs, the capitalists, the people who put up the money for an investment. Uh, you get rid of the workmen. You get rid of the, the students uh, who are learning how to uh, study a foreign language or computer science or uh, teaching or medicine or whatever, and you drive them out. Mm-hmm. You make sure that they can't possibly live there, that they are in desperate straits, and they have to go. Mm-hmm. Uh, then you have the target country they are forced to accept this wave of migrants who generally don't have any connection with them whatsoever. I mean, you, you in the present situation, you've got people with an entirely different cultural background. You've got people with entirely different religions, uh, languages, and educational levels. And what happens is you've, you've got a country trying to absorb them. Uh, what do we do with 50,000 migrants in Munich, for example, uh, we can't house them except in a sports stadium, and they either lie on the cold ground or uh, or we get an air mattress for them, but there aren't 50,000 air mattresses in all of Munich. So you've, you've got uh, these housing costs, you've got education costs, you've got to teach them a known language. There isn't a pool, uh, for example, in Europe of uh, native Dari or Pashtun speakers. And of course, the the migrants, uh, you know, they don't necessarily speak the language of the host country that they're being driven into. And you wind up with people there; they don't speak the language. They'd have a different educational level. They uh, are moving from a rural agricultural uh, society, perhaps. Uh, they're not the uh, uh, the high technical workers that you might need in, in, in for example, Europe. Uh, where you have a, a high-tech economy, you need people that understand uh, computers and uh, precise measurements and uh, optics and, and things like this. So you've then you've got the other issue, which is the split between the natives, the people who welcome them, the new people. They they say, oh, there are these poor people. They're they're very much like the United States. 
uh, where you uh, have been conditioned for years to say, well, oh, all these people from south of the Rio Grande uh, are uh, fleeing persecution and, and destroyed economies and revolution and tyrannical governments. It's our duty to take them in. Well, you also have the people who say, well, wait a minute. Who decides who gets in? Who decides what we do with them? We are in control of our country, not them. We get to decide. And then you have the split between the these two branches of the uh, the native population, and you wind up with uh, frustration and and fights and battles, uh, physical and mental uh, and political, between the newcomers and the two branches of the the natives who uh, can't agree on what they want to do, and you've got uh, uproar and chaos, and you have people that. Uh, don't like where they are, can't go home again, mm-hmm. presumably. And you've got, and then you've got the people who don't know what to do with them and don't know what to do with each other because they're not sure who should control the country and in which direction the country should go. Yes, that, that's a very big part of uh, the issue here. And um, I do want us to get back into that in a little bit uh, because uh, this kind of has implications um, that are uh, that are far-reaching uh, in terms of of what these uh, mass migrations are doing to societies in in Germany, and perhaps what they're even designed to do. Um, getting back to uh, Kelly Greenhill uh, for a moment, um, you said that she is actually part of uh, the kind of national security. Uh, apparatus. Um, she's not only been um, part of higher education, so-called, in the U.S., but has held all of these high-powered uh, positions in various places, including uh, John Kerry's office for a time, you said. And um, I'm wondering, Mike, if, if you can just speak to how uh, influential uh, her thinking is. Um, I mean, is is her is her paper weapons of mass migration is it kind of an afterthought or do you think that uh people in uh the defense industry and washington and lobbyists and think tanks have have actually looked at it and said hey uh this is uh this is actually a good idea uh we can achieve some geopolitical uh objectives by following through on this let's see how we can um implemented well exactly right uh, that's that's the thing i think it's a pattern or a cookbook or a guidebook on how to destabilize countries using uh migration you've got to, to begin with you've got countries that uh, have to face what she calls hypocrisy costs they say they've signed uh, treaties conventions on uh, migration and immigration and uh, asylum and refugees that spell out what they have to do when somebody crosses the border and says, I need asylum because uh, uh, I belong to a particular religion, tribe, um, ethnic group, um, uh, family or whatever, uh, and religion or you name it. Uh, there are very specific categories. And people have to be given asylum. And these uh, people know how to exploit this. They've, they've got this tension, this hypocrisy cost of 
well, we sign these conventions, we have to take them in. And people say, well, the hell with the conventions. Whose country is it? Uh, but in the case of uh, Greenhill, uh, she, for example, uh, she had uh, been associate professor of political science and international relations at Tufts University, a research fellow at Harvard uh, at the Kennedy School of Government. Uh, she's got a PhD from MIT, uh, more degrees from Harvard and Berkeley. Uh, she's uh, held fellowships again at Harvard at their uh, uh, Institute for Strategic Studies. And uh, she's uh, worked as a consultant to the Ford Foundation, which is often tied to the Central Intelligence Agency mm-hmm. and to the United Nations High Commissioner for Refugees. Uh, a defense program analyst for the Department of Defense and economic policy intern in, in Kerry's office. Mm-hmm. So she's in tight with the uh, the movers and shakers. And the uh, the issue of her, her section on Korea, as, as one of the analysis points in the book, shows uh, there were various non-governmental organizations and religious groups that thought it would be a great idea to change the government of North Korea, like the governments in Eastern Europe had changed after the collapse of the uh, United uh, uh, Union of Soviet Socialist Republics. So they thought, well, we can drive these people out and encourage them to leave, to go to China, to go to South Korea. And that failed because the Chinese said these are economic migrants. They're not asylum seekers. And the South Koreans, for example, said, well, yeah, we'll help them. They're our countrymen. But then when they started getting a bunch of criminals coming over the border, they decided that, well, we can't help what we've got already. Why should we encourage more? And that is the essential model for what's been happening in in Europe in the last couple of years. Mm -hmm. Well, maybe we can get into some of those specifics about what has been going on in Europe. Because just reading the news, you see what you talked about, the kind of two polarized um, uh, viewpoints on the whole crisis. On the one hand, you have the um, <clears throat> the people who reject it and, you know, don't want, don't want the immigrants there and see them as all as, uh, you know, criminal criminals and, and economic migrants and kind of people just living off the system. And on the other, you ha- on the other hand, you have the people that will, you know, want to welcome all refugees and, you know, provide a safe home for all these people fleeing from war zones, etc. But, um, you bring up some, you know, some stories and facts and statistics in your book about, um, how this actually works, like what actually happens when you have all these, um, well, millions, I think, because I think the number is more than one million, like even in a year of uh, migrants from different countries coming into these, into a totally new culture. What happens when, when that happens? Maybe just list some of the, the, the side effects or the consequences. Well, the, the big side effects have been a, a tremendous uh, boost in crime. Uh, it's it's gone to uh, staggering proportions. Uh, the most outrageous example was the one a couple of years ago with uh, New Year's Eve, uh, December 31st, 2015, when you had in Cologne uh, a thousand of these migrants attacking women who were packed into crowds in front of the, uh, the railroad station square and in the square across from the cathedral. And uh, they robbed them, they groped them, they stole money from them, they took their cell phones, uh, they tried to rape as many as they could. And this happened all over the country uh, to a greater or lesser extent. And the government and the police played it down. 
the Lord Mayor of uh, Cologne, for example, uh, her reaction was, well, uh, you women really, uh, you, you should keep an arm's length from strange men. And, of course, the, the question came back, well, in a crowd of thousands, how are we going to do this? And uh, the Alternative for Germany party, uh, the main opposition group in, in Germany now that's opposed to the European Union and the, uh, the wave of migrants, came up with a poster of a beautiful girl in an evening gown holding this huge revolver at arm's length, and the caption underneath read, in translation, yes, we've checked it out, and, arm, and arm's length is real security. Henrietta Raker is right. Hmm. But the police did nothing on that New Year's Eve. But a week later, when Pegida, a, a right-wing group uh, opposed to migrants, uh, staged a large demonstration in the same place, the police rolled a water cannon in January and sprayed them with it. But they couldn't have done this the, the previous week. Mm. Yeah, so it, it's questionable. Yeah, when when this first happened, this this story, I I had trouble, um, you know, discerning what was fact and fiction, fiction, and what was um, kind of um, overplayed in the media and what was underplayed. So I wasn't sure, you know, which side um, was making an issue out of it. Because on the one hand, you could, from the you know, for the, from the perspective, well, if you look at both perspectives, each has a motive to kind of make up news right on the one hand you'd have you'd have the the motive of the people let's say on the left who would want to downplay these kinds of things and um basically say it's fake news and then on the other hand you'd you'd have uh uh kind of an impetus or or a, a motivation to um kind of make a big deal out of what might be um or or to like exaggerate or you know, make a story out of something to make the migrants look bad, to to make, you know, to make people more upset. So at that time, I wasn't, you know, I wasn't quite sure which was which. And, but it seems like over the last couple of years um, that there have been just way more stories on this, on the increase in crime. And, and even just the, like, uh, I, I think it would probably be a, a gross exaggeration to say like that all migrants, you know, that come into the, the country are rapists or, um, you know, or criminals. But just the fact that there might be a you know a higher percentage would be enough to to make it to the news and make it a noticeable issue. But one thing that I ha- that I wasn't familiar with was a um, a statistic you give or you know um, not necessarily a statistic but just a um, it's probably from um, you know from an analysis of statistics. But that is that when you have a group um, like an age group that is predominantly male then um, crime goes up. It's just like a, you know, a statistical correlation. When you have a group where, let's say, 70 or 80 percent of, of that group are males and there aren't enough females to balance out the, the equation, essentially, then you will have more violent crime and more rapes, etc. And so you point out in the, in the book that if you look at the, the statistics that have been released on, on the, the migrants, what, what, are the, what are the percentages? Something like 70 to 80 percent are, are young men, right? Yeah, yeah, they're all under thirty-five. Right, and so so naturally, you right. would so have a higher ins- a higher. Um, you would have a higher. Ins- oh, sorry, I was getting some some echo. You would have a higher percentage of uh, of crimes just just based on that those population numbers. So, in that sense, the you know the people on the right are are correct in raising this kind of issue. They may be wrong in the way they frame it because it's not necessarily you know because they are. Um, you know, because they have brown skin or something like that. 
um, you'd have this with any kind of uh, any population coming from a different culture to another in in those statistics, you know, as as predominantly young males. Um, but on the other hand, um, you, you give a you give a couple anecdotes of like your experience in uh, in India and Saudi Arabia. I was wondering if you could just give us um, your thoughts on on what you encountered about like the the kind of viewpoint when it comes to to women when you went there. To women when you went there. Oh yeah. Well, in Saudi Arabia, uh, I was told before I went at the Foreign Service Institute, the State Department's um, uh, educational arm. They had a, a section on area studies where you learned about the country and the attitudes and the politics and the culture. And one of the things that stuck in my mind that uh, from one of the teachers was he had said the Arabs, essentially Arab men, uh, believe that there are two kinds of whores, paid whores and free whores. That is, women who voluntarily go out with men and uh, in, in a region and a culture where Marriages are arranged and sexes are kept separate uh, from the time they get to maybe uh, 8, 9, 10 uh, on. Uh, this creates problems when these people are set down in a culture where things are a bit more permissive, the things are a bit more relaxed. And uh, in India, I remember a Christmas party I gave, and I invited uh, some of the neighbors, uh, one of whom was one of the Sikhs, uh, an elderly gentleman. And I had uh, various people from various embassies around town, plus uh, uh, people from the American embassy. I had a bunch of secretaries there. And a couple of them pulled me aside uh, at the end of the party and said, look, you know, that, that, that guy over there, uh, he's absolutely something. He's groped us both. And he, the guy is absolutely shameless. So, I, you know, it's it's. You've got a culture clash, and uh, the Europeans don't know what to make of it. They uh, haven't traveled, for the most part, to a lot of these places, except perhaps as tourists. And you've got the people who are been, have been forced out of their homes by the American Forever War, and they're pushed and guided, in fact, by the intelligence services and George Soros and a lot of large companies, uh, among others, uh, into Europe, herded into countries that, that can't absorb them and have no idea how to handle them, and you set up this tremendous culture clash. Mm -hmm. Well, uh, maybe we well, should talk about uh, that for a moment, because, um, because um, uh, in your book, you, you your book, make mention a few times of this kind of infrastructure that's been built and supported by Soros and his Central European University in Budapest. Uh, you also discuss how uh, the company Cisco has created a, um, a kind of a Wi-Fi cell phone way of helping migrants um, to track paths into Europe from various places. So uh, they're getting all kinds of uh, help um, by these NGOs, uh, by uh, the Open Society, uh, of Soros is the Open Society Initiative. Um, it, it, did, did Soros read Greenhill's uh, uh, book? <laughs> did you know? Is he is he partly the author of it? Um, he seems to be uh, a kind of um, guiding figure, a leading figure in 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 facilitating this whole mass migration. Migration. Yeah, I mean, you know, you're you're a guy in, in Syria and Damascus 
where the uh, the average monthly wage is $50, but somehow you acquire a, a cell phone or an iPhone uh, that can connect with the Internet and can be recharged and can guide you uh, on your way to Europe. I mean, you don't you don't go to Saudi Arabia, you don't go to Israel, you don't go to Egypt, you don't go to the Gulf countries uh, like uh, Bahrain or Kuwait or uh, the United Arab Emirates or Qatar. Uh, suddenly, you're going to Germany, and you have no ties of religion, of culture, of, of experience uh, with those countries in Europe. But somehow, you're on this path uh, using your uh, fancy cell phone to uh, guide you since you don't have topographical maps. You go and you, you recharge it. You hook up to a Wi-Fi network that Soros has helped set up, that Cisco Systems has helped set up, and has worked with uh, uh, companies or, or NGOs that have been given lots of money, such as Mercy Corps and uh, um, oh, what's the other one? NetHope, I guess, uh, mm-hmm. that have ties to the American government who have been working for years in conflict zones uh, created by the American government uh, and who, in fact, some of whose staff have been jailed as espionage agents uh, by other governments. So uh, you've got this organized migration and you you just don't wake up one morning and say, well, I'm in in Kabul, so I'm going to go to to Dusseldorf uh, and I'm going to walk all the way. I mean, it's thousands of miles Mm -hmm. and you have nothing at the end of it and you have nothing but you can carry in your own two hands. Yet somehow all of these people manage to get supplied, manage to get fed. They manage to have water and they they know how to find the uh, uh, the right trafficker to uh, sneak them across the border in whatever country, what it costs, how to find the guys. Uh, what languages they speak. I mean, this is this is not something spontaneous, but it's billed as that. And uh, the uh, the media, the press, and the radio and television uh, never address any of these issues. And in, in fact, there's just been a flap in Germany where uh, this woman in the West German radio had said that she had been pressured by the government uh, to give the proper responses welcoming the migrants and couldn't question any of this. And when she wrote internal memos and asked internal questions about this, wasn't this censorship? Wasn't this uh, managing the news? Uh, they retaliated and uh, she just about lost her career. So this is what I, I sort of suspected was happening and mentioned it in the book. And this simply proves it that the, the government is uh, working hard to bring these people in and will stomp on anybody who dares to question it. Uh, For example, Twitter refuses to advertise my book because it's classified as hate speech. And I'm not quite sure how the cover of my book and my website, michaelspringman.com with two N's and uh, a statement saying this explains the migrant Suzami is somehow hate speech. Hmm. So it's a, um, uh, a well-organized production with uh, interpreters from the Budapest University uh, that Soros is running and, and has a lot of trouble with the, the Hungarian government, which doesn't want the migrants, doesn't want quotas imposed on them, and says everybody is entitled to their own way of life, and it's a fine way of life in Hungary, it's a fine way of life in Germany, but not everybody in the world is entitled to that. Not everybody in the world can walk across the border and claim that as their birthright. Mm-hmm. 
But uh, in yeah. the case of Merkel, uh, who's putting people in jail and finding people substantially for questioning this, for criticizing the migrants, uh, it's another story. Yeah, that, that seems to be part yeah, of the psyop, doesn't it? That if you're in any way critical yeah. of uh, yeah. how this is occurring, uh, you're you're somehow racist or bigoted or anti-migrant or you have no compassion, um, and uh, and and they're really wielding this through the media, through German media, uh, as a kind of a, a a sword over people's heads. Don't even think this way, um, or you will be uh, punished and labeled and uh, and ostracized. Um, I did want to. Yeah, go ahead. Well. Um, so a few minutes ago, uh, we talked about the the kind of um, demographics of uh, the migrants and and um, the percentages of of them that would be young people who would be more likely to commit crimes, uh, if at all. Uh, the flip side to this would seem to be um, the discovery of various newly sprung cells of uh, of jihadis that are training or found training in various places in Europe. And uh, you describe this in your, in your book as well. And um, what you seem to be pointing to is the fact that uh, on this wave of migration uh, are piggybacked these uh, cells of, of jihadis that are being sent in and uh, organizing and training uh, in Europe too. Um, how much of that would you say is, is by design in the, in the sense that um, you describe in your book, Visas for Al-Qaeda, Mike? Uh, I think it's design. I, I think that the, uh, what's happened is the, the situations described in Goodbye Europe are a follow-on to Visas for Al-Qaeda. Uh, the, um, the issue is you, you, you created these people and then you needed to do something with them. And in the case of um, uh, the situation in Europe, they are doing something with them. They see Europe as a threat to uh, American domination of the world. And uh, they're afraid of a European Europe rather than an, an Americanized Europe. And they figure if they can send these people in and disrupt the economy, disrupt the political system, then you've got uh, a win-win situation for the Americans. They've introduced these uh, jihadis. They've created cells. Uh, they've had people uh, that were caught not by the German internal security services or by the, uh, uh, the federal criminal police, uh, but by people who uh, were among them, and they, uh, they peached on their uh, compatriots and reported them to the authorities. Mm-hmm. So it's... Uh, uh, a very organized kind of thing, and uh, they've they've found uh, groups that are all over the country. Uh, they've been brought in with uh, fake Syrian passports created by Qatar, uh, and who's to say the French, which used to print the Syrian passports prior to 2011, uh, they could well be producing these things under the table. And they've had statements uh, saying, "Oh, we've got the uh, we found the terrorists in Syria." making passports that are almost uh, as good as the real thing. Uh, and uh, you sort of wonder how could they can do this in the middle of a war zone where you don't get enough to eat, where you don't even have time to pray, uh, but you can make fantastically perfect uh, modern passports. So it, it's a real organized thing. Um, 
RT asked me at one point, uh, you know, we, we think there's some 5,000 terrorists that have been slipped into Europe in this migration. And I, I disputed the number, but I said, they're definitely in there. They're uh, a really bunch of uh, people who have been guided and trained and uh, uh, educated. And uh, they've all been moved into Europe under cover of legitimate refugees or legitimate asylees. Mm-hmm. Well, one of the things I wanted to point out... Uh, from the book was that oh, just wait i'm gonna i'm gonna turn down the volume so we don't get any echo right now so one of the things that uh that stood out for me that i hadn't really considered is that you point out that in ordinary like refugee crises when there is a, a problem in a certain country what you tend to see happen is that the, the refugees tend to congregate or be be put in in uh, bordering states and so there are refugee camps set up and with the ultimate goal of the refugees returning. And what, But that's not what we've seen uh, with the wars in uh, Iraq and Syria and, uh, and Libya, well, in Somalia. Um, what, you, what we've seen is this mass uh, like migration across, you know, and in bas- like tons of countries, well, a lot of countries into the, basically the heart of Europe. <clears throat> and just that to me suggested, okay, well, there's there's something more going on to this then because even if um, um, I think it's probably a combination, there is um, a kind of spontaneous nature to a lot of it, but there's also the organized bit that then gives a, a kind of shape and structure to that spontaneous movement. So you have these routes set up, and you have NGOs set up at the, at various points to to provide Wi-Fi and and cell phone rechargers and to to um, to let people know who the human traffic who the human traffickers are, where to go, who to talk to. So the entire infrastructure is set up, and then anyone um, you know that wants to leave the country for whatever reason um, now has this whole thing set up for them, so that they can make their way to to a country that that is openly you know wants to welcome them, like Germany or Merkel basically said, We're, "We'll let you all in." So um, I think that it's kind of like a um, if you look at the the debate on both sides, one one side, well, I think even both sides of the debate, they don't really um, tend to acknowledge how organized it actually is. Um, on the left, it seems to be every, everyone sees it just as a, a real refugee crisis, and these people just need somewhere to go, and that's the end of the story. It's like they w- they won't get into the role of NGOs, they won't get into the geopolitics of it, and the possibility that there's some level of control, and that this is being. Um, this is like a weapon of mass migration, like you said, where it's designed to not only destabilize the origin country of the migrants. Um, in this case, it would be Middle East and, Af- and, uh, and, and North Africa, but also the, the destination country. Uh, and these would be uh, like Germany primarily, but also other European um, countries. So I just wanted to point that out and, and see if you had anything to add to that. Well, you uh, you pretty much hit the uh, the main points. Uh, I guess the only thing I can add is that uh, uh, a lot of this information came from Sylvia Germack, who wrote the the foreword to the book, uh, and who had worked in what used to be Yugoslavia um, and had uh, seen this and saw how uh, they had actually put up uh, refugee camps next to the countries that uh, the refugees were coming from. And uh, you know, as she said, you got to. Uh, uh, you, if you have refugees from Syria, you put a, a, a refugee camp in Syria someplace, or you put it in the, in, the, in the country next door. You don't put it in the middle of Central Europe or in Northern Europe, and that's what's happening. You've got people flowing 
from sub-Saharan Africa now. You've got people coming from uh, the Middle East uh, and uh, almost anywhere uh, moving across the Mediterranean, moving up through the Balkans, going as far north as Sweden. And uh, you've got uh, tens of thousands of unaccompanied children. And, uh, you know, they they just don't get there from uh, Syria or Libya or uh, Mali or someplace like this uh, without a lot of help. Uh, somebody pays for this stuff. Uh, I read uh, when I was doing research that it's $2,000 for a Malian to uh, cross from Africa into Europe. Well, that's two years' salary for an average uh, Mali fellow. So who gets the money? I mean, they save it all up. That, that's, that's scarcely hard to believe, and nobody questions this, uh, except for one uh, Swiss journalist uh, come um, uh, publicist, uh, where he said they're not asking questions. They're, they're, they're doing exactly what you said. They're, they're painting over it. They're looking in, in the wrong direction and saying this is not calculated, this is not uh, directed, uh, but, oh, this is a, a situation we have to deal with, and all these poor people have to be helped. Well, what you help them by doing is stopping their wars. You stop bombing Syria. You stop bombing Iraq. Uh, you stop the uh, soldiers being sent into Turkey by the Germans or into Iraq by the Germans or into Mali by the Germans. Uh, you stop the French from sending their aircraft carrier, Charles de Gaulle, into the uh, uh, Persian Gulf to bomb Iraq and Syria. I mean, this is this is what you've got to do. You've got to help these people get home, rebuild their countries, and educate them there, put them up in, in uh, prefab huts if you have to, but take care of them at home and uh, send them to, uh, to Denmark with – two uh, wives and a dozen children and then get permission for the third wife and eight more children to come. Uh, that doesn't work, especially if the guy claims he's too sick to study Danish and he's too, too sick to work, sick to work. So it's, uh, uh nobody looks at what's really happening. It, it's, mm -hmm. it's trying to uh, put a bandaid on um, uh, a chainsaw cut without realizing that the chainsaw is still cutting. <laughs> Yeah, it really is the, the elephant in the room. Stop these uh, regime change wars, these, uh, these humanitarian interventions, so-called, and you won't have millions of people uh, leaving their countries uh, for Europe or, or other places. Um, Mike, exactly you, you, right. the, the subheading of your book is uh, Merkel's Migrant Bomb. And I, I wonder if we can talk a little bit about Angela Merkel um, because you, you point out a few interesting, uh, facts about her, uh, that I, I didn't know about. Um, she was a particularly, uh, uh, kind of maneuvering politician, uh, capable of, uh, of, of, um, well, let's just say that, that she, she's very political. Uh, she was able to, um, kind of, pull ahead of her mentor, Helmut Kohl, in the 90s. Uh, she has a, a, a background in, uh, in East Germany uh, where she was working with the Stasi, the intelligence agency there, uh, which was particularly oppressive. Um, and she claims that she was only working in, as a minister of culture or, or, or part of that. In any case, uh, she does have these left-leaning 
um, a veneer of left-leaning or progressive uh, politics and policies. Um, and, and yet she seems to be uh, steering the country to, to chaos um, under the veneer of, of trying to help migrants. Um, I wonder if you can just speak a little bit about her and where her allegiances lie and, and what it is you think that she is trying to accomplish. Well, I don't think her allegiances lie with the well-being of the Federal Republic of Germany. Mm -hmm. uh, she swore an oath to protect and defend the Constitution and uh, support the well-being of the German people and so forth. Uh, but the, uh, the issue is that when she was living in East Germany, she was born in West Germany, but had migrated with her parents uh, to the East when her father, who was a, uh, uh, a minister in the Lutheran Church, created the East German version of the Lutheran Church, one subservient to the Communist Party. Uh, and in return, he got special benefits like cars and trips abroad and education for his daughter, who got a PhD in, in physics. Uh, she was the, the person who was in, engaged in agitation and propaganda with the Communist uh, uh, East German youth movement. Uh, she claimed uh, only to have uh, turned down a... Uh, a Stasi, a state security service uh, uh, recruitment attempt, but uh, people believe that she was very close to the East German government and to the Communist Party. At one point, she was quoted as being uh, of saying that if we're going to reform East Germany, it won't be reformed in the Western model. Mm -hmm. So uh, you, you see how much of this is still in her mind, I think, that it's a command economy and you will do what I tell you and you will do what I think is best for you. And she's been described, uh, of course, as the mother of the nation and this, this helpful, uh, nice person, but a, a former aide to uh, uh, British Prime Minister Tony Blair said she's a ruthless politician. And uh, it was Helmut Kohl who uh, made her his protege, and uh, she managed to get him out of the, the party, out of politics, by somehow... Uh, uh, bringing to the attention of the, the press that he had all this uh, underhanded uh, fraudulent money and slush funds and, and dirty double dealing in finance. Uh, you know, she claims not to have done it, but somehow uh, this inside information came out and she was the closest insider to Cole. Uh, same thing with Lothar de Maizière, whose son is now her interior minister. Uh, he was in line to take over the Christian Democratic Union, her party, uh, until his ties to uh, East Germany came out. He had been the last East German uh, non-communist head of government, and uh, he had been tied to the Stasi, the state security service. But uh, bang, that was out, and then suddenly the only person to head the party was Angela Merkel. Mm -hmm. So the what she's getting out of this, I think, is, one, she's reshaping a command economy in her own view and trying to impose it on on. Uh, all of Germany, not just um, part of it. And I think also uh, she's got this idea, as far too many people have, that the way you deal with a uh, uh, aging population that needs more social services is not to encourage uh, the birth of more children of German natives, but to bring in outsiders like they're doing in the United States to do the work, to sweep the streets and mow the grass and, and collect the garbage. And she sees this as a way of pumping money into the system, uh, but economists don't believe this. One fellow uh, believed that it's going to cost Germany 
a trillion dollars or thereabouts uh, to deal with this influx of more than a million outsiders who have to be trained and educated and brought up to standards. Mm-hmm. So they, they, what she's got in mind uh, doesn't seem to square with reality. Mm-hmm. Plus, in the background, I, I think she's absorbed this idea uh, that uh, Peter Sutherland, the, uh, who is involved in the United Nations uh, Migration Office, uh, he said that, uh, well, Europe is too multicultural. We need to bring in more outsiders from different cultures. And you had these, uh, this Dutch politician, Diedrich Samson, who persuaded Mark Rutte, the, uh, the prime minister, to work out a deal with Merkel uh, that was cooked up by uh, Gerald Knaus, a Austrian think tank head, uh, to create a system where they would bring in 250,000 migrants a year or maybe as many as 500,000 from Turkey mm-hmm. and alter the cultural landscape of Europe. And uh, they believe that they can bring these people in and uh, you can wipe out the concept of a German or an Italian or a Spaniard and you will simply have a, a, a continent filled with people with different migrant backgrounds, not nationalities. And so far, this seems to be working. Something like, according to an RT report, 22% of Germans today now have a migrant background, which was not the, the situation when I was there and was not the situation just a few years ago. Even. Mm-hmm. Well, on the one hand, it works. But on the other hand, it's it it's not hand, working because it's not, it's not working in the way that the politicians say that it should work, right? So like you said, it's debatable whether the economic angle works because it's uh, it's it seems that it might actually cost Germany more to uh, to support all of these migrants as opposed to um, them actually making enough money to support the welfare system for um, you know for the aging population in Germany and then whether this whether the multicultural aspect works or not I mean I think that for for the people that um, support you know multiculturalism as an ideal the way they picture it is basically you know a bunch of different unique cultures living in harmony um and that doesn't seem to be working either as you can see just by looking at the news and seeing the reaction to what's going on so from that perspective i'd say it's not a success exactly right and the thing of it is and what they nobody seems to realize is that not only are you uh destroying uh, European culture and the, the different concepts of Germany and France and, and Sweden and Switzerland and Austria, but you're also destroying the cultures of all of these migrants. You're taking them out of their own culture mm-hmm. and you're essentially saying your own culture isn't going to work anymore. Forget about it. You've got to become a German or a Swiss or an Italian or a European and you've got to forget Arabic and Pashtun and, and, and uh, 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 Dari and you have to forget the history, the thousands of years uh, of uh, the Middle East and optics and philosophy and medicine and become Europeans and totally close the door on your own heritage. And that is a tragedy that nobody seems to realize that they're harming the migrants as much as they're harming the Europeans. Mm-hmm. Well, I'm curious, Mike, what, um, you know, from your perspective, what kind of migration do you think works? Like, what should the process be to actually have it, um, you know, be as conflict-free uh, as possible? Well, along the lines of what the Canadians and the Australians are doing, you set standards. If you want to immigrate, you can do that, but you need a certain educational level. 
you see need a certain amount of income, uh, you need a certain language skill, and you you just don't simply walk in the door and, and say, I'll sweep the streets so I learn how to do something better. Hmm. They target people saying, you can come, but you bring something with you. You bring something to the table. Uh, you bring um, engineering degree. You bring skills in uh, uh, telegraphy. You bring skills in shipbuilding. Uh, mm-hmm. You're a computer whiz. I don't know. But, yeah. uh, you know, you don't come here and, and, and live off of uh, us. You bring something to the table. You bring money with you. We don't want to spend money uh, teaching you uh, uh, Italian or Spanish or, or Swedish. Uh, we want you to have a grasp of the culture and a grasp of the um, the language and have a certain educational level and a certain amount of money in your pocket before you walk across the border. Right. And that's not yeah. happening in Europe. They, they, this guy Sutherland, in fact, said, oh, we don't want to bring in the, uh, uh, the highly educated, uh, skilled workers. Uh, we want to bring in everybody. Yeah. Well, um, Another angle that I, I tend to think about when I when I you know when I just tr- try to think about the issue is I kind of think about my position. So if I were to move to another country, how would I approach it? Like say if I were to go to Russia, um, I'd think you know from my perspective, I, if I were to move to another country, I would learn the language and want to be able to integrate to a certain degree in that country. And I'd and if I'd uh, if I'd choose to go to another country, I'd probably have reasons for choosing that country. Like I like the culture and I want to basically, you know, integrate to a degree in that culture. I'd still keep my, you know, I'd still consider myself at heart, you know, a Canadian. That's where I'm from. Um, but I wouldn't really want to, uh, I wouldn't expect to move to another country and, um, and just continue doing everything the way I did it, you know, in Canada. I would, like I said, like learn the language and, and the culture and basically try to, um, you know, adapt myself to that. And um, I think w- in, in the case of a lot of, um, let's say, asylees or, you know, or, um, you know, people that really, for a good reason, you know, have to or want to leave the country they're in, I think that might be, a, there might be some conflicting, um, you know, motivations there in that regard. But at the same time, you'd think, okay, I have to leave this, my country, and I'm entering a new country, so what do I have to do to fit in there? But with the with the migrant wave, like when you have like a million people or hundreds of thousands of people coming at the same time, it doesn't seem that there's there's really um, that that's really a, a factor in it, 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 or at least that's how it appears on the outside. Um, what can you say about the like the the particular you know migrants that have been going into Europe? What's their attitude towards um, you know moving to another country? Well, on the inside, what you've got is demands for segregated swimming pool hours, segregated uh, exercise club hours, because they want the men and the women separate, because that's the way it's done back home. Uh, the uh, the more uh, conservative types uh, are scandalized, in their view, at the uh, scantily clad German teenage girls on the streets. Uh, it's gotten to the point where... Uh, women on the street who are not accompanied by men are harassed by some of these migrants because they think they are free whores because they're out on their own and uh, doing uh, their daily chores. And this doesn't work. Uh, This creates more problems. And uh, you wonder sometimes, well, the feminists in Europe, 
why they aren't rising up in open rebellion against being told, well, you can't go out of your house without your husband or your male uh, relative being with you. Uh, demanding that you, you cover your head, you dress uh, not the way you want to dress, but uh, according to the way somebody else wants you to dress so that they are not offended. And it's getting to the point where in, in some of these uh, schools uh, where they have Christmas uh, celebrations, uh, they're forbidden to do it because uh, most of the people in the school don't celebrate Christmas. So uh, people are saying, what is this? You know, we can learn about somebody else's culture, but when they come here, they want us to join their culture, not the other way around. And that creates incredible amounts of tension. Yeah. I remember reading uh, – Somewhere in, in one of these towns, the, the Muslim boys wouldn't sit at the same table with Christian girls in the lunchroom in the school. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's, uh, it's astonishing because my Arabic teacher and a, a TV producer in, in Beirut that I know said in the Middle East, Christians and Muslims celebrate each other's holidays. Mm-hmm. Uh, but in Europe, uh, it, it's not happening. It's it's uh, they're walling each other off. The Christians are here and the Muslims are there. Mm-hmm. So yeah, ironically, multiculturalism yeah, ironically, seems to work better in the Middle East. Yeah, um, Mike, you, you make the point in your book uh, that the German security services, the BFV, uh, the domestic kind of um, version of the FBI, it sounds like. Uh, has been doing a really poor job of keeping track of people who they know are likely to uh, commit uh, terrorism, who have ties to uh, various uh, terrorist organizations. Um, criminal pasts. Criminal pasts. Um, at one point you mentioned that the, uh, the, the chancellor's office submitted um, in the Bundestag uh, sweeping authority uh, for security services to spy not only on foreigners but on German citizens. Um, it reminded me quite a bit of what we're seeing in the U.S. Uh, vis-a-vis uh, all the legislation that came after 9-11 uh, and, the, and the curtailing of, uh, of, of rights in the U.S. and, and mass spying. Um, I wonder if you think that this migrant crisis is also facilitating some kind of uh, totalitarian uh, movement um, among Merkel and, and her cadre of uh, politicians. Is there is there something like that that we're seeing in Germany right now that can be comparable in some ways to what we've seen in the U.S. in the past 16 or so years? Yes, that's exactly right. The uh, they're uh putting more controls on people at airports, putting more investigations of legitimate travelers. Uh, They're uh, working very closely with the Homeland Security in the United States, the FBI and the CIA. And uh, they are doing their best, for example, to uh, control already controlled firearms on the continent. like Germany, as you as we, I mentioned earlier, they're they're putting controls on who can speak out and where, and if you don't speak the right way, you go to jail or get fined. Uh, and it's not the um, uh, the alternative for Germany party or this Pegida outfit or uh, uh, Marine Le Pen's Front uh, National. Uh, it's the uh, the establishment. It's the the center or the left of center governments that are giving uh, more rights 
with fewer restrictions to the external and internal intelligence services that the uh, German external service, for example, can now modify, uh, modify, I'm sorry, uh, can monitor uh, telephone or, or email or electronic communications uh, if they think there is a reason to do it and, there, and it doesn't matter whether there is a, uh, a citizen on one end of the wire or not, they're, they're going to do it. And the same thing holds for the internal security service, which is uh, um, essentially like MI5 in Britain or, uh, you know, it's the uh, domestic version of the external intelligence service uh, so that it's a, uh, uh, they're watchbirds, and uh, it's their job to see what's really going on in a country. And in, in Germany, for example, the, the BFV is paired with the, the German criminal police, and they also have their equivalents in the state governments. Yet somehow, uh, this guy that crashed the truck into the Breitscheidplatz Christmas market uh, in Berlin last year, well, you know, he was known to the government. He had been followed by the Internal Security Service. Uh, he had been on an American no-fly list. He had been uh, uh, quoted as saying he wanted to get an AK-47 and do something in Germany. And the, the criminal police had picked up on this. But the uh, the Justice Ministry said, oh, well, there just wasn't enough to do anything about this. And after six months, they decided they would drop the the investigation and then he drives a truck into the crowd, and then they suddenly said, well, I guess there is enough now to uh, issue a warrant for his arrest. Mm-hmm. But somehow he left Berlin, traveled through Germany, probably traveled through France, went into Italy where he had been before in jail, uh, and was killed in a shootout very conveniently in Milan. So it, it's uh, it's astonishing. Uh, there was another case of uh, this Afghan who uh, – raped and drowned Maria Ladenburger, uh, a medical student in Freiburg in the southwest in, in Germany. And he had been uh, jailed in Greece for trying to throw a young woman off a cliff he had been following. And then uh, the community sentence uh, was he was so good. And he skipped parole, came to Germany uh, without papers. They couldn't get rid of him because they had no place to send him. And then uh, he caught uh, Ladenburger bicycling home from a party from medical school and uh, raped and drowned her. So it's uh, you wonder, these people, are they that really stupid, that efficient? This is Germany. This is a country that's had a long tradition of security and uh, dealing with uh, foreign powers. Yet uh, this goes on, and these are only the top of the iceberg. I mean, this business of uh, Ladenburger's murder the um, the Afghan migrant he had been known about for some time, and the rape and murder had been kept undercover, and they had a lid on for two months till it hit the social media. Until then, it hit the print media, and then all of a sudden, people were starting to ask questions. Hmm. I had a friend in Germany who uh, wrote me an email about this, saying that uh, uh, this was absolutely awful, and between this and a couple of other rapes and murders. She didn't want to listen to the news anymore because it was so depressing. Mike, could you talk a bit about your what you think about the rise of kind of the right wing response to this whole situation, the rise of the right, essentially? Yeah, I, I think that uh, it's a direct result of uh, this welcoming of migrants, no matter what. I mean, they, they the press tries to play it up as oh, the right wing is lost. 
Marine Le Pen was an elected president of France, but she got one third of the popular vote. And they made such a, um, a production of Macron uh, uh, getting an overwhelming majority uh, for the, uh, the French parliament, but it was the largest abstention of voting in the history of France. So people didn't vote for him. Uh, they just simply didn't vote, period. Uh, in Germany, for example, uh, the, uh, the AFD, uh, which is a farther right party, is being attacked right, left, and center by Merkel and the establishment because they're asking awkward questions. And they're, it's a party that began just about uh, 2003, I think, and they're already in most of the state legislatures and are poised to join the, the federal parliament with the elections uh, set for about September of this year. Uh, they they hate them. They they attack them at every opportunity. But they're getting votes, and from what I've seen on their websites, they all hate Angela Merkel and what she's done with this migrant wave. And Pegida is a little bit farther right, and uh, but they can get twenty five thousand people into a demonstration in Dresden against the uh, the migrant crowd. So uh, the Germans simply don't look at this, and when they do look at it. Uh, they send the police out in droves. They, in Cologne in the, the last New Year's Eve, they sent uh, police into the area. They had controlled access to the area around the railroad station and the cathedral. You had identity cards checked. They were checking people on the trains because there was uh, proof that they were using the, uh, their cell phones to organize another demonstration in Cologne. And the, the police boarded the trains demanded identity cards and took uh, a fair number of people prisoner and held them and investigated them, which set off the Greens and some of the left parties saying, uh, you can't do this. And But they, they kept prevented another um, um, uh, New Year's riot. But again, is this a uh, foreshadowing of the future? Will they do what they're doing in America, increasing control? So if you go down to the Washington Mall for the fireworks on the 4th of July on Independence Day, You've got uh, police controls on what you can bring in. Uh, you can't bring any alcohol. You like, can only take certain containers. You have to be x-rayed. You have to be patted down. And then you're permitted to go onto the mall and sit on the grass. So they did this at Cologne. They put up high-resolution TV cameras all around. They checked identity cards. Uh, they had a massive police presence. And uh, this is, uh, unfortunately, what, what, what Europe may be coming to, following the American example. Hmm. Well, um, a couple of days ago in the U.S. in uh, South Carolina, uh, we had a, a very interesting thing happen. There's been a, a current trend of um, certain uh, state parks around the country wanting to take down the statue of uh, General Robert E. Lee, who fought in the Civil War and represented the Southerners who were ostensibly pro-slavery. Um, his story is quite a bit more uh, complicated and nuanced than that. He's he's represented. Um, he's also a, a kind of a symbol of uh, integrity of the South. He was uh, he advocated uh, unification and uh, reconciliation after the Civil War. Um, but all that aside, w what's recently happened here, uh, Mike? I don't know if you heard about it or not, but um, the. Uh, Another statue is going to be taken down of his in a park in South Carolina. Uh, this was uh, this was done by the I think the state legislator. Um, it, it seems to be informed by this movement of uh, 
leftist, politically correct, uh, so-called progressive thinking. Um, and it created a backlash, a, um, a reaction among uh, right-leaning people here uh, who protested, uh, who were called white supremacists. And maybe there were a few people who were racist among them, but um, that was a title given to them by the Southern Poverty Law Center, which you mentioned in your book as well in a, in a different context. Um, so uh, what we had here was this this big leftist reaction against this uh, more right-leaning group that was angry about the statues being brought down. And um, there is this kind of uh, greater divisiveness here in the U.S. that, that seems to be reflected by uh, a similar divi- divisiveness among the left and the right that you mentioned earlier in, in places like Germany. Uh, where you're either um, accepting and liberal and and uh, and helpful of migrants, or you're considered a racist. So I, I, I'm wondering if uh, if you see both kind of um, phenomena here and and um, in Europe as connected in any way. I do. I mean, it's uh, in the United States. Americans are not good at history. And uh, they seem to think if you can get rid of a statue, uh, somehow that changes history. And uh, you really wonder about them, and you really wonder about their their sanity sometimes. Uh, if you want to uh, uh, talk about Robert E. Lee or uh, some of the other uh, Confederate leaders, uh, if you want to talk about them, talk about them. Uh, say this is what they believed in, this is what they thought, this is what they said. And uh, things are different today. We think this way, we think that way. But to, to pull the statue down, uh, to precipitate race riots, to uh, tag people as extremists, as racists, as hate mongers, as white supremacists, uh, it distracts people from the real issues of the economy and of politics mm-hmm. and uh, the inability of both political parties in the United States to grapple with reality and do something about the lack of health care, to do something about uh, pollution, to do something about uh, crime, etc. And the same thing is happening in Europe. Uh, they're not talking about uh, uh, dealing with uh, what kind of country are we going to have, what kind of uh, uh, controls are we going to have on our citizens, how much freedom of speech will we permit, uh, how much uh, government intrusion into our daily lives will we permit. It's just like the United States. It's... Uh, well, we think that this is what's best for you and you will accept it or we will paint you as a uh, uh, fanatical right-wing uh, heir of Adolf Hitler or uh, you name the uh, uh, the current uh, uh, demon in, in politics. And uh, yeah, I, I do see that this is happening and I, I really think it's organized. I've had people tell me that, uh, oh, it looks like George Soros is doing this in the United States. I mean, he, he likes to fish in troubled waters to make some money out of it. Mm-hmm. And certainly he puts enough money into bringing the migrants into Europe uh, with uh, iPhone apps and uh, the uh, Central uh, European University in Budapest uh, that, uh, you know, you think he's into something. And uh, I, I really wondered about Soros. People kept saying he's the monster. But they can never tell me why. And when I researched Goodbye Europe, I found out what he was doing and why. And I, I realized that, yeah, that uh, he has trouble. And uh, there's uh, – I saw an article in the paper just the other day about in Baltimore, in Maryland, um, the largest city there, 
they've had uh, tremendous race riots and uh, great civil unrest for the last couple of years. And George Soros' open society, lo and behold, is operating in Baltimore. Mm-hmm. And I, I think you put two and two together, you're going to get four and not five. Hmm. Well, Mike, maybe I want to ask maybe to look in your crystal ball for a sec. Um, if if in Europe we see the kind of uh, the further rise in some of these right wing parties, um, first of all, I want to I want you to let our listeners know um, if you think that's kind of a necessary reaction. But then I want you to give um, your kind of best and worst case scenarios for the future, you know, based on something like that happening. Mm-hmm. Well, I think there will be more movement on the right. I mean, it was just uh, uh, in Austria that the um, um, the for the right candidate of the uh, the party there lost the ceremonial position of president of Austria, uh, and it was done uh, pretty much on the basis of uh, uh, manipulating. Uh, his viewpoint, uh, he was painted as a neo-Nazi because his, uh, his party used a, a type of blue that was similar to the, the color blue that the Austrian Nazis used in the 1930s. Uh, so what I've seen, is he, they may well come make a comeback, and this time around, the, the party may take the chancellorship, which is the real um, political power there, the prime ministership. Uh, in Germany, they're moving farther to the right. And uh, the same thing in France. I mean, they, they keep painting Macron as a wonderful guy, uh, but more and more people are questioning what he's doing. Uh, he had no real background, uh, except that uh, he had been economics minister and uh, had attacked labor uh, and uh, created riots all over France with his uh, draconian policies, uh, trying to cut uh, income uh, and, and working hours. So I think they're going to move to the right. I think that the, the left is bankrupt. Uh, I mean, the, the left has based its whole policies on welcoming migrants and uh, with no concept of what to do with them and with no concept of what's causing the migration crisis to begin with. The, the constant mm-hmm. warfare in their countries, it's the, they've been dehoused, deculturalized, destabilized, and destroyed. So I, I think that uh, Europe is going to move farther to the right. Now, how far to the right, I don't know. Uh, but I, I think there's going to be more tension as the right gains power and as more stories come out about uh, government policy to control information like the uh, the West German radio uh, uh, journalist who uh, uh, ran into all kinds of problems uh, with the government because the government-controlled uh, news media said, well, you have to do what we tell you, and you have to shape the news the way we want you to, because after all, this is a government-controlled station. They're, they're going to stop this. They're going to uh, go to more alternative news sources, I think. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's, I just see continued tension until uh, there is some resolution of this migrant situation, and it's going to get to the point where uh, – I don't know whether you're going to have street battles, but uh, you're definitely going to have some political battles. And uh, how long Merkel will be able to sit on this and control it, I don't know. Uh, The alternative in Germany, for example, is this Martin Schulz, uh, who isn't doing very well in the the opinion polls. And generally, it's a choice of him or Merkel, and either one means more of the same, because he hates the alternative for Germany party as much as Merkel does, because they challenge the... uh, 
the migrant view and the uh, the absolute control of the European Union over German internal politics and the economy. And I think this will happen also in France. Uh, it's happened somewhere in Switzerland. The Swiss have blocked the uh, the migrant wave there, and they're trying to overturn this. They're, they're a group of people uh, with uh, deep pockets funding the uh, Let More Migrants In movement. Uh, and in fact, one of the guys, Vis, W-Y-S-S, he's very close to Hillary Clinton and the Democratic Party in the United States, and he's contributed lots of money to them, uh, as I see it illegally. But, uh, you know, and in Austria, again, uh, the right may bring it off this time. Uh, it depends on who controls the news media and how many lies and in what form they can tell. Hmm. So I see nothing but trouble for the future in Europe. Yeah. So what do you, th- what policies do you think can be put in place to deal with the migrant problem and especially like for the existing migrants that are there, like the millions, million plus that are there right now. Well, what they've got to do is take the money that they're using for NATO, take the money that's being used for the budgets of the NATO countries. And instead of using it to further the forever war against Arabs and Muslims to take this money, stop the wars and send these people home again to their own country, to their own climate, to their own culture, to their own religion, and educate them. Put money into uh, teaching them foreign languages. Put money into teaching them uh, to do something more than, than shovel dirt or to sift sand. Uh, get them to where they can uh, become useful functioning members of society. Take the money and use it to help them repair the destroyed waterworks, sewage treatment plants, factories, and so on that the Americans and the Europeans have destroyed. Mm -hmm. And in the case of uh, legitimate refugees, legitimate asylum seekers, well, uh, use the money to investigate them to make sure they're not uh, somebody who's been slipped a passport by uh, Saudi Arabia or Qatar or uh, uh, one of the American cat's paws. and uh, do something about them. But uh, this business of open-ended migration doesn't work anywhere in the world. Mm-hmm. And until, and unless and until you can do something about helping these people help themselves, you're going to wind up with a millions of disgruntled, dissatisfied people that don't fit into any society, let alone their own, since they're being forced to forget their society. And as uh, Khalil Gibran said, uh, if you forget your heritage, then you have no heritage. So you, you've got to go back and put an end to the wars and use the money to furthering the wars to do something to help these people that have been driven out of their countries, rebuild the countries, create a Marshall Plan. It's been done before in Europe when Europe was destroyed in 1945 and Germany became a powerhouse 10 years later in 1955. So I, I think there's a precedent for this and I think they can do it, but you've got to change the political viewpoints. And that's the hard part. Mm-hmm. Well, Maybe one last question for you, Mike, uh, that you, you touch upon in your book. Um, there, there is a, a desire on the part of uh, those in the U.S. who would um, seek to, uh, you know, have a global uh, homogeny or hegemony. hegemony. Thank you uh, to uh, keep the economic and political relationship between Germany and Russia uh, to an absolute minimum. Um, and, and this has been kind of, um, it's played out in the form of Merkel, uh, constantly accusing Russia of not, uh, helping the 
eastern region of uh, Ukraine to keep to the Minsk Accords. It's even gone to Merkel accusing Russia of of interfering with uh, elections. Uh, in any case, um, how do you see the whole uh, kind of migration bomb, if at all, being connected to this desire on the part of the U.S. to suppress Germany's uh, relationship to Russia? Russia, if at all. Well, exactly right. A forcing Germany to digest millions of illegal aliens with no ties to the country whatsoever. Uh, is one way of weakening Germany. Germany is the strongest country economically uh, in the uh, uh, west of, of Russia. Uh, it's a country that uh, has a great deal of education, uh, technical uh, resources, um, and so forth. And if you united those with the Russian natural resources that they have in great abundance – uh, you would form a tremendously uh, powerful uh, alliance and that would probably take in the rest of Europe and you would have a European Europe mm-hmm. uh, instead of an Americanized Europe. Uh, you know, Merkel is taking a, a play from uh, Hillary Clinton where Hillary Clinton, Clinton raved and ranted about uh, the Russians through the election. It was their interference that uh, caused Donald Trump to win. And the same thing is being repeated by Merkel and her uh, uh, intelligence chief, this fellow Maasen. And, uh, you know, it, it's it's the same nonsense. It's, well, they, they, they are uh, planning something. They are uh, going to uh, manipulate the elections by having another uh, uh, Cologne New Year's riot take place to turn the people against the government and so on and so forth. And it's... Uh, the Americans are working really hard to destabilize this, to split them off. They've, they've got Ukraine, which would have been a natural link between Russia and Germany. Uh, they've, it's been uh, controlled by neo-Nazis for years. Part of the eastern region is split off. The Americans don't like that in the least. And uh, to keep the pot boiling, the Americans are sending these road trips of armored vehicles in the hundreds with thousands of American soldiers Mm-hmm. All along uh, the borders of uh, Russia, through uh, Czechos, well, Czechia, I guess they're calling it now, uh, and Poland, and the, the Baltic states, and um, Romania, and so forth. And uh, it's provocative. It's uh, it shows the uh, the Europeans that well, the Americans are here. The Americans have their their weapons, and the, the Americans are uh, opposed to Russia, and. and uh, a lot of the people don't like this. They don't. They think it 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 uh, has too much of an opportunity for a uh, uh, a World War One type of situation where one bit of violence precipitates a major war. They they're concerned about the thousands of soldiers moving through Europe. Uh, the Americans have been in Germany for seventy two years now and don't look like they're going home. Uh, Germany's a target now for uh, all sorts of terrorist activity, I would think, because you've got the uh, headquarters of the drone strikes sitting at Rammstein Air Force Base in Germany. Uh, you've got the American Africa Command headquartered near Stuttgart. Uh, so uh, I think that uh, the um, the Americans are endangering Europe, really, by their presence there, and in particular Germany. So that uh, uh, unless they can uh, get the Americans out, uh, Germany will be divided, Europe will be divided, and... Uh, 
Russia will be uh, pushed off to the side and hopefully uh, they can bring about a revolution there and get rid of Putin. It, it's, a, it's a real mess and I don't like uh, the German attitude of blaming everything that's bad in their country on Russia. Mm-hmm. Well, uh, Harrison, did you have anything else you wanted to add? No, I think we're good. Um, Mike, we really appreciate you coming on today and talking to us about your new book, Goodbye Europe, Hello Chaos, Merkel's Migrant Bomb. Uh, a very interesting read, uh, very informative. And uh, thank you so much. Thank you. I appreciate the opportunity to come on. I, I think that it's marvelous that you had me out to talk to your listeners. And I'm delighted and gratified. Are and you, about uh, all I can say, I guess, is uh, you can buy it on Amazon as either an ebook or as a print edition. Great, and we recommend that our you know our listeners check it out and go to your website. It is Michael Springman with two ends dot com. Is that correct? Dot com. Is that correct? That's right. And it has background on the book. It has uh, reviews of the book, and it has a link to um, uh, to Amazon. Great. All right. Well, thanks again, Mike. Um, we'll talk again soon and we'll see. Well, all you listeners will hear us again next week. So everyone take care. All right. Thank you very much. I'm delighted to be able to talk to you. Thank you. Thank you.